We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Three people with no lives spend holiday weekend in America talking about terrible Europa League game. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. We're here. You probably aren't. We're probably talking to nobody. There's no chance you will listen to this. There's probably no reason we should be talking about it, but we are. It's Cologne 1, Arsenal nil. But campiones, campiones, ole, ole, ole. We top the group, which means we get to avoid one of the teams that will ultimately knock us out of the Europa League. And here to talk about it is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Paz and in my pants. Hello, Paz. Woohoo. Woohoo. And Clive is on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim is drinking uh, from the pictures I've seen, uh, unfortunately, small beers, <clears throat> but he's drinking them nonetheless in Germany uh, and presumably is all pissed up and can't be on the podcast. But we will talk to him uh, at some point in the future. In any event, Let's kick it off. And here's what we're going to do, just to give you a little rundown so that you don't leave yet. If you're thinking of like, oh, God, why am I listening to this? You should have that thought at, at all times during this podcast. But we are going to talk a little bit about the clone game, primarily focused on uh, two players that we think are relevant to the discussion of the game and discussion of the team in the future. And that would be Jack Wilshire and Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Then we will shift gears, talk a little bit about uh, shakeup. Uh, behind the scenes with the new scout that we've brought in, uh, sort of an important addition, and we'll get to what we think of that. Um, and then we'll dive into Burnley a little bit. Along the way, we will welcome Scott in to give us a uh, sort of statistical look at the uh, ship fest that was Cologne, but also what we can expect from Burnley this weekend. So that's it. That's what we're going to do. We'll start it off, though, with Paul. And I think at this point, you know, look, the Europa League has been a chance as the Carling Cup has been, Carling Cup, listen to me, what am I, a thousand years old? The, the Carabao Cup um, has been a chance 
unlike in the past, not just for young players to, to try to make their mark and try to earn their place, but for more established veteran players to show that they should be closer to starting for the first team than being squad players. And no one has needed to use that opportunity more arguably than Jack Wilshire, who spent last year out at Burnley, who is Arsenal to his core, been around since 10 years old. I, I don't think there's an Arsenal fan alive who doesn't at least hope Jack rediscovers the magic of his youth. But after an uneven group stage and with one game left, it's, it's starting to be hard to see how the manager can trust Jack to become a starter again for Arsenal in the Premier League. And this game, I think, is interesting because he did okay, but again, in a game where we had a lot of possession, maybe not shining the way we would like. Did you see anything from Jack Wilshire that leaves you optimistic that the rediscovery of his brilliance is on the horizon? Well, uh, so the, I guess the short answer is no. Okay, um, so Clive. Now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I probably we all saw the same thing. Kind of the first two thirds of his game was pretty good. He shaped up nicely. He kind of created some stuff. But as we got to the box, he kind of over elaborated, and maybe that was just because they they were there in such numbers and the options weren't there. But you kind of, it was that last piece we were missing. He, he actually had a, a really good shot laid on that that could have turned the game around and maybe the narrative changes a little bit then. But yeah, he's in a tough spot and and if you like, arson is too to work out where to from here. because um, you know, he looks pretty good, uh, but it's just not enough to break into the first team. Um uh, and it's got to be very frustrating for him. Uh, he needs more games than this to get to his top level. But they also need to be more meaningful games. And that's that's the catch-22. I think he said something about when you play every three weeks, it's very frustrating. And you can relate to that. And also when you play against Cologne and they offer so little as a game. You know, we had so much free space outside of their box. And then you get to their box and there's 10 of the fuckers standing there. Yeah. Giroud has to be frustrated. It's just got to be, you know, you kind of think of these. We talk about having two teams kind of going out in two competitions and toggling back and forth between them. But it's really frustrating for the the experienced guys playing in this setup because either they don't quite have the players around them to make their particular game tick or just the overall team doesn't tick the way if you're playing in the first team in the Premier League, you're getting a real run out. So it's got to be a lot of frustration there. I mean, do you so, think do you think that the the presence of two non offensively minded midfielders in Coughlin and Elneny and Elneny sort of the quintessential keep possession, safe passing player? Coughlin is whatever Francis Coughlin is, but like, I mean, they're they're not going to make the third man run particularly. They're not going to link up and creating intricate moves that, that Jack can use as a platform to be that playmaker. I mean, is is the ultimate exculpatory evidence for any of these players just that the team is such a mishmash and that there's probably a dearth of quality to, to build that platform for attack? Yeah, uh, and even within that, maybe uh, that's a fair statement, but there are also some players where, like, let's take Elneny, who's actually a pretty good midfielder, but he certs, suits a certain type of player. And when you put out the second 11, it is what it is. 
Um, and, you know, there were no wing backs. It, we'll talk about Maitland Niles. And he did great for 90% of it, but that final ball, the cross, Let's come on to that. And just, yeah, because yeah. that's a big part so, of what I want to talk about next year. Yeah, so just to wrap up on El Nenny, maybe, you know, maybe he was well above the average in terms of ability on the field, but it's not a setup that necessarily suits his game or a game that suits him. So I just think it's it, it's fodder for a great deal of frustration, although you can say at the end of the season, these guys get, you know, get 15 starts or whatever they may end up with at the end of the season. They got to be mightily frustrated as individuals. It, it, it's not quite the rosy story of well these guys play in the premier league and these guys play in the europa league and then yeah. we'll get to the group stage and god knows what'll happen then so the knockout stage I yeah i think that the problem you have right is that if you are that squad player or two that gets thrown in with the first 11 you get a chance to show that you belong in that group when you are 11 squad players what are you showing particularly um yeah clive I mean, obviously, Jack is a player you really have, you've stated on this podcast, you pinned some hopes on that you, you want to believe, you want to see him be the future of Arsenal uh, at the number 10 or in the midfield or wherever the hell it's going to be. But like, at some point, we have to ask ourselves, is it that Jack isn't shit, but Jack isn't poised for this brilliant future? I mean, at this point, are you ready to start to draw some conclusions as a coach of young men? I mean, what would you be telling Jack he needs to do or is he not doing that is missing from his game right now? I think uh, when he first came back, sometimes when you had an injury, you come back, you, you come back really quite fresh and you come back really infused. And then after a period of time, you sort of hit a bit of a physical wall. And what you know, Paul's who's spot on actually, what he's alluding to is it it's very difficult for him to get a rhythm when he's playing every two or three weeks. Right. So and I do think the people that he's playing with are not actually helping him. They're different people all the time, different experience levels, and it's very hard for him to get on a wavelength with them. I'm sure if you put him around like minded brains like Alexis and Ozil, they wouldn't even have to think. They just know how each other move. But yeah, I have I always have one issue with Jack and I'm not I'm not sure it's something he can fix actually. And um I think football is changing, it's becoming more athletic. And his body has changed over the last few years. With him being injured so much, I think I just think he's bulked up his lower body and I, I think he looks mechanically just not as good as he used to look. Not as light he on runs. his feet. His touch doesn't just, have that same close control. Everything seems a little heavier and lumbering. It's just uh, your eyes don't lie. We all, we can all see it. He 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 can still do lots of very good things, right? But in that company, he must feel as though he's got to do it all himself. In top company, he can just pop it off, get it back, and it becomes harder to track. So I don't want to rush to judgment on him because I, th I think Paul's absolutely right. I think it's the players that he's playing with. And I think, you know, we've all seen him play with Giroud, for example, not to criticise him, but Giroud plays one way. We all know how he plays. He looks for first-time layoffs. And um, they look for it too. Cologne could see it happening. As soon as Giroud got the ball, they just put bodies around him. And do you notice how many times Jack got kicked in this game? A lot of times he got kicked, he's put to the ground because they could all see where the move was going because no one else was really getting around. So Jack was striving to get us going, but no one else was getting around Giroud. And I think ended up, Jack ended up in areas where he's not really that good. He was in centre-forward areas trying to win headers on crosses. And it's all because he was just trying very, very hard. So 
when I see a player trying hard like that, I don't want to rush to judgment. The one thing that does concern me is that football is becoming a very athletic game. It's about what you do off the ball and on the ball. And I look at his body now. I look at his body type. I look what he's developed into. And I do wonder about his athletic ceiling. I don't worry about his talent. I worry about his ability to run around consistently in big spaces. And I think that's why he's not trusted at the international level, although we all know the international level is probably similar to the Europa League level. But um, at the international level, he's not trusted. And the manager would rather pick big running athletes that can't play. And Jack can play, but maybe he can't run in the same way. Right? So, um, See, and I, I think that's a mistake personally, just because I, I think the, the pace and the physicality of international football is much lower than Premier League football, where the pace is frenetic and intense and there's a lot of physicality. I think someone like Jack, who still has an eye for space and pass, can be effective in the international game, but his lack of, of range and mobility as he's gotten older and gotten through the injuries is more of a liability in something like the Premier League. Plus, the English team have kind of used him as a bit of a Pirlo, where he can he can sit back and they kind of build it around him. So he doesn't need to do even within the English team, he doesn't really need to do the really physical stuff. Yeah, but you know what, Paul, you took my next point there. I mean, we did we we did nice, good, exactly what I wanted to go on to, right? The next point is, you know, we we're debating we're debating whether he can get back to a level. But there's a secondary debate. What's what is he? Is he a deep line midfielder? Is he a second number ten? Is he a single number ten? We're not quite sure what he is, right? So England wanting to play deep, we want to play higher up. He ends up playing higher up and do a lot of work in wide areas, which I think is a waste of his ability. He probably needs to be a one behind two strikers, really. That's the, that's the armchair that he needs. Don't you think, though, that's, that really it's deep-lying Trequartista Libero? I mean, that's what it feels like for me. I'm just, kidding. I'm just making a point. <laughs> well, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a debate. It's a debate, isn't it, guys? It's a debate. And for me, he's still the, the alternate Ramsey. So I agree with you. He does not have the engine to play it that way, though. That's the problem. It's a totally different way of playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he'd be he'd be the guy who steps in for that position. He wouldn't do a Ramsey, but that's uh, I see him as this the second pivot. Oh God! I I still think the other other central midfield. You want to find a player, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you look at any player, you want to say, do they have one skill that is elite? And if they do, can I put them in a position to utilize the elite skill they have? Jack used to have a burst and a dribble and a trick that was elite, and you could put him in central midfield, and he could he could carry the ball and and break lines with his dribbles and and start the attack. He doesn't have that anymore. I still think he can have elite Are we vision. sure? Well, it, it's not showing itself if he has it, but here's what I would say. I think he can still I've seen ha- some of it. All right, fair enough. Let me do my bit and then you do your bit. Um, he, I think he has... He still has elite vision and movement around the box and he can still be elite with his, his little balls and dagger balls, hurtful balls in the final third. So... To me, to answer your question, Clive, that you didn't pose and to cut you off in the middle of what you were trying to say. Um, That's okay. No, it's fine. Uh, is that I think to get the most out of the elite skill he has left, you probably want him closer to the box. I mean, would you agree with that? 
that makes sense. Maybe not with such a static centre forward. Although some people, again, some people think the Giroud Jack combination is great. I think it's because of one I goal against Norwich, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see him play against a striker who's on the half turn. So those passes are not coming back to him, but they're going through, and someone's running in on goal. It's all about people that you're playing with and the end result and the output. And I, I think the you know, debate about Jack will go on because I think potentially I think he's best in a three-man midfield on the left side of a V. You know, with someone behind him and someone to the right. Potentially, he's a number 10 behind two strikers. Potentially, he could be the deepest man on his own in a one. And he's got the ability to do a lot of things. But that creates a debate on how you see him. Some fans want him to replace Shaka in midfield. I'm not sure he can do that. Uh, In this system that we currently have, I think it requires athleticism that Shaka struggles, struggles with. I don't think Jack is any more athletic. So I think that's an issue. So again, we just got a player with all round abilities that's fighting for his game, that's trying very, very hard to come back to a level, that we're putting him out there with the, the dirt tracker team, the midweek team, and that hasn't got the same level of quality, ingenuity and initiative as the first team has. has. And, we, and then I'm hoping we don't rush to judgment on him. Again, the only fear I have is not something that he can potentially change in a short space of time. And that's just his body type and the requirements of the modern game, the athleticism, the sprinting, the -the off-the-ball work that's required to be a top-level midfielder. And there are midfielders out there, in my opinion, that haven't got an ounce of the talent that he has, but um, are built in a way, physically, that allows them to really contribute and to be trusted by their management. And I think Jack has got to find a role within our team, a role for himself, that he's trusted. And I think if he keeps fighting, he may make it. But there is another angle to this. Potentially, his game now suits a different league. And there's a debate that maybe... (laughs) Italy or Spain, where people fall back into areas and the the ingenuity that he has to drop the ball on a six-point into crowded boxes... That would be so appreciated in, in another country, whereas in our country, we we like the, the running and the fighting and the tackles and the big bodies. So um, Yeah, I, I, I think the, the problem you're going to run into, and Paul, I'll give you a, a final word on Jack, but the problem you're going to run into here is I don't think he's done enough to where the manager really feels like he can trust rotating someone out of that first 11 in favor of Jack. I mean, we may see it because he may feel indebted to him, and we know this manager has increasingly started to pick teams that way as he's gotten older. But Jack's comments make it clear that this isn't the role he wants. And I think, as we already know, he he chose to leave to go to Bournemouth to get playing time. I think it's probably going to get to the point where Jack and Arsenal are not going to agree that his future is at the club. I mean, Paul, is that is that where we're headed with this? I'm afraid so. I think it'll take an injury, a very well-timed injury for Jack to really get a look in. Um, and, and like I say... I kind of like him in that other midfielder role, kind of doing the Santi thing, because I think that we are actually missing today. Um, So he's going to need an injury and a run in the team for your scenario to to change, I think. I I, I think from his comments, he sees it that way. The -hmm. the manager has been very hands-off, non-committal on him, selling him uh, to the English public as a a viable option for the World Cup team, but not committing himself on him. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's what we're going to see. Let's do this. Uh, and I think it leads into the Ainsley Maitland-Niles thing yep. in that it's what do we? What does the team need? Personally, I can see where we could use a Jack if he can just get up another level. 
and it's kind of pretty similar to the spot we probably need in Ainsley, Maitland, Niles, but we also need wing backs. But to me, he's he did a great job last night, uh, but he's not a wing back. Let's but do this. We. Let's hear from Scott for statistics because uh, I think it addresses that a little bit. Then we'll come back right back to you, Paul, and and get your thoughts on Maitland-Niles' performance. We'll talk about sort of whether he's put himself in the manager's uh, plans and where on the pitch that would be um, and maybe why he didn't do as well as he could have done, uh, but we'll come to all that. So what we're going to do is we'll talk to Scott. We'll get the statistical analysis. We'll also go into some stuff with him about uh, the Burnley game that's coming up. Then we'll come back and talk Maitland-Niles. What could be more interesting than a boring match that we lost 1-0 in the Europa League? The statistics of the boring match we lost 1-0 in the Europa League. And that's why Scott is here. You can find him at O underscore that underscore underscore crab. Uh, Scott is our resident statistical expert. Um, You can also find his stat stuff on crabstats.blogspot.com if you want to dig through that. Scott, um, I appreciate you mining the data gold that is the Europa League game we had at Cologne and I think the first thing we want to talk about just right off the bat is Jack Wilshire. A lot of talk after the game that Jack Wilshire is not getting to the level where he would put himself in the frame to, to start Premier League games, to start important games. And while I don't think he passed the eye test in this one, in a game where we had a lot of possessions, statistically he did rack up some interesting um, passing stats. So what, what do you see in the data behind Jack's performance? Um, to me, he was um, one of the, the few Bryce bright spots in the match um so i mean i guess if i was to, to rank the players i would have said ainsley mayton niles alex awobi and then probably jack wilshire um in these games you are looking for your veterans to kind of provide that little spark for you um to push you through especially when you're starting you know your b team and your kids um and for me jack wilshire was the really the only of the veterans that really provided anything on the day so uh as far and then while you know, I think there are some people that may disagree with that in terms of what they saw with their eyes, what do you see in the data? So he was actually um, the leader on the team in passing value added um, with a point three, which is in the 99th percentile. Um, actually, I'm just, let me take that back. Um, he, he was just beyond or just behind Ainsley Mate and Niles um, in the, the value added passing. Um, and so um, to me, he was really progressing the ball well. Um, I do want to um, cabot this in saying that Arsenal had 70% possession, so um, they were really not getting challenged in these passes. So that would definitely skew these numbers um, upwards. Um, you could have seen that in almost all of the guys passing well um, in this match, but not really providing the, the final ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jack Wilshire was one of the few guys that actually did provide the, the final ball. Um, he had three um, or two key passes, and um, he provided one of them, which was the, the through ball to Ainsley Maiden niles which was our best chance of the day, our only big chance. Um, and so his overall XA was 0.45, um, and he was one of the, the few guys to get some shots off, and he had it 0.31 XG. So overall, um, Arsenal created 1.1 XG, and Jack Wilshire accounted for 70% of that. Yeah, well, I mean, or the XA, XA, yeah. So, and just, this is a good time to kind of quickly refresh on PPVA, the progressive passing stat that you've kind of crafted. This gives a positive value for passes completed further up the pitch, uh, negative value for passes that are not completed, and based on the zone. So if you 
miss a pass in the final third, you don't get dinged that bad. You miss a pass in the defensive third, you get dinged pretty bad. You complete a pass in the defensive third, you get a little notch up. You complete a pass in the final third, you get a bigger notch, middle third, middle notch. So, sort of like that, right? Exactly. That's essentially so, it in, in my layman, Luddite, uh, or idiot terms. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the easiest way to think of it is so every spot on the field has a value. It becomes more valuable the closer you get to the opponent's goal and the closer you are to the center. So, obviously, the spot, you know, in the six-yard box in the center is going to be the most valuable space on the field. You know, the, the corners on, you know, your your defensive side are going to be the least valuable. So, moving forward and moving center are good. So, the only thing, the only thing I would say about that is in a game where you have a lot of possession – you can rack up PPVA by completing low-value passes, but just completing a lot of them. Um, exactly. XG Chain, which measures your contribution to passing moves that build to a goal, ad, uh, pardon me, to a shot, admittedly, they don't value your role in it. They just give you credit for being involved. I mean, do we have XG Chain numbers for him on uh, in that game? Exactly. No, he came out at the, the point seven, um, like I was mentioning. Oh, okay, he, didn't right have any, he didn't have anything um, beyond his um his shots that he created and his shots um but that was 70 percent of arsenal's xg on the day but, so yeah so he's he contributed to what little we did create he did do enough with the passes that he made to build up a decent progressive tally he he was contributing to the shots we did get off and you know given the fact that we're looking for silver linings again none of us are saying he jumped off the pitch and made put himself in the frame for a first team position Statistically speaking, he he did some of the things we'd like to see Jack do, and obviously some of that's undermined by what the eye test tells you. But I think it's great to have those that data to at least suggest that maybe this wasn't the depressing performance from him that we we may have thought. As far as wide positions, you mentioned something to me before we came uh, came on and recorded that I thought was interesting, and that is that uh, you know we've been using those wide positions a lot this season. Bellerin and Kalasinac or Kalasinac are really important in terms of how we have been building play and attacking. And crossing from wide positions is a big part of how we then create shots. But in this game, the wide positions we got into, we weren't able to use as effectively, correct? That's exactly right. So um, Arsenal attempted um, a 30 crosses, um, which is well above their, their season average. But just three of those crosses actually turned into shots, which is uh, 10% and is a very shockingly low number. What would be a um, good number? Yeah, you would you would expect it to be closer to twenty five percent or higher than that, um, especially with a um, a target man like Olivier Giroud in the match, um, who's known for getting on the ends of those kinds of crosses. So overall, not um, a great day from our wing backs. Um, they they did I you know to to help them out. They did provide um, quite well in dribbling. Um, Arsenal were very dribbly. Um, I think this is probably the most. Dri- They've been, they, they attempted um, 37 dribbles and completed 28 of them. Um, so we were um, attacking in that regard. So that was a, as a, at a team level. But maybe um, so but more individualistic attack than, than a team-oriented attack in that respect. Exactly. So those dribbles did not turn into great shots. Um, and it looks like they would dribble and then cross or dribble and then make a pass or something like that because it, it was not turning into actual you know, line-breaking moves that, you know, gave you a free shot on goal. Right. So, moral of the story, um, Jack didn't look great statistically, maybe a little better than we thought. Wide positions got into them really well, uh, had the opportunity to deliver crosses at a higher rate than ever, in part due to the fact that we had so much possession. Um, 
but it was from those positions that we failed to execute and where we kind of let ourselves down, at least statistically, 30 crosses resulting in three shots. Um, you mentioned Giroud. Some of the some of the criticism has to go to the the wing, the wide players who were delivering crosses, but it wouldn't be me if I didn't say, does some of the criticism belong with Giroud? I would definitely say it does. So he's another one of those guys you would look to to provide that moment of magic in this match. Um, and he had zero shots on the day and just the, the one key pass and that one key pass fell to Francis Coughlin and he is not one that you would expect to actually complete it, although he did have a couple of fairly good shots in the match. And I, I am so wanting to see what kind of celebration he has afterwards. Just to, Francis Coughlin's goal celebration is one of those things that we're just going to have to imagine in our head. I don't think we're going to get a chance to. I, I guess, look, when you have this much possession um, and your center forward doesn't have a shot, that's that's problematic. And you can certainly question the buildup around him, but at some point, your center forward having no shots and, and one key pass in a game where you have that much possession is, is worrying. Um, let's move off of this game because my ears are bleeding just from having to hear us talk about it. Um, we have the Premier League at the weekend. It's the return of the good players who are good at football for us and hopefully not for them. But Burnley are on the same points that we are, which is pretty incredible. Um, they are hardly conceding. I think they've conceded, what, nine goals this season, something like that? Yeah, I believe it's, yeah, yeah that, I, I think it's eight non-penalty goals. Okay, now, written down here. so this is the thing. Burnley have conceded eight non-penalty goals, but on expected goals against, they're dramatically overperforming. You want to talk a little bit about the statistical anomaly that is Sean Dyche and, and what we can expect and why they're conceding so far fewer goals than we would expect them to? Yeah, so this is something um, every week I, when I pull the data, I kind of go through and I look at things and find things that, that interest me. Um, and this is something that really piqued my interest this week. Um, so, yeah, you're talking about um, their goals allowed. So they're fourth place in goals allowed, um, just behind um, Manchester City, Manchester United, and I believe uh, Tottenham. And they do not expect that on your XG allowed. So they have allowed 15.8 XG allowed, which is 14th in the league. Um, so they are overperforming by nearly 50%. So, you know, the seven and uh, almost seven and a half goals doesn't sound like a big mat or big amount. Um, but at this point of the season, um, nearly overperforming by 50% is huge. Um, so there's a, a special tool that, um, Danny Page has created that you can put in all of the, the XG for every chance that they've had, and you can run a, a simulation of it. Um, so I did that with their their chances, and the probability of this actual result happening is 0.22%, so that's 0.22%. Um, so, so you're saying there's a chance. Is, <laughs> yes, this is, this is way out in that left tail of the, the distribution of chances, so we would definitely expect them to be more in the 14 to 20 goal range allowed instead of the eight that they're actually at. Um, so that actually brought me to the conclusion, uh, or, you know, it piqued my interest more for investigating what is going on with this. Um, so one of the first things that you see when you watch them, and admittedly I haven't watched a, a ton of Burnley because, well, I like attacking football, um, but they uh, are tied for first in the amount of blocks that they make. And this is about the only stat that they produce um, on the defensive zone because they don't tackle, they don't do interceptions, they don't even really foul all that often. So, they, so, so let they me just throw them. jump in here and, and see if I'm interpreting right what you're saying is they let you get into their final third, they let you progress the ball, 
they're willing to put all the men in the box, pack it, and say to you, you can get a shot off, but you can't play into our box and into big chance range, and we're going to block those shots. I mean, is, is that really it, that they, they take a more passive approach to defending and just try to put bodies in front of the goal? Exactly. So um, that is exactly what the, the stats say, and that's exactly kind of what the eye test says. So yeah, they are tied for first in blocks. So 37% of the shots that they face have been blocked so far this season. Wow. Um, so 37%. I, I Exactly. Holy so God. that is definitely tied for, for first, I believe, with uh, Brighton, who also um, give up a lot of shots, but you know, follow that passive kind of defensive model. Um, so I went through and I, I looked at what those blocks have actually been worth, um, and they've been worth 3.5 expected goals. So that right there um, brings things down a little bit better and makes it a little bit more in the the realm of possibility how they have conceded um that would be 12.2 um expected goals compared to their eight so that's a, that's a little bit more within ryan um what you'd expect and so i ran the simulation again and this actually happens 1.6 percent chance at the time um so this is a little bit more realistic um but that still leaves um them overperforming expected goals by about 25 percent and that's still fairly high um, so then I looked at what they're actually doing um, on a save rate perspective. So they have had um, Nick Pope and uh, Tom Heaton um, both basically having career re- years for them um, in goal. They are saving 83.7% of the shots that they faced on target, um, which is right behind uh, Manchester United and Chelsea. Um, but I wouldn't really classify the, the uh, Burnley keepers on the same level as a, a David De Gea or a uh, Courtois um, as an elite goal. No, stopper. so you're saying th- these aren't. This isn't just indicative of their skills. This is indicative of keepers that are playing out of their mind. Exactly, and that's what um, the research suggests. As you look at save percentage, it's not something that um, is a really a repeatable skill. Once you get to this um, elite level, um, almost everybody is going to be in a, a fairly narrow band of um, true talent. So where you would expect it to be um, in that 65 to 75% range, you could have you know a, a season or two where you're better than average, but it's not something that you would put a, a ton of stock in repeating. Um, and part of that could be just in the, the measurement of we don't know necessarily where um, the goalkeeper's positioning is um, in relation to where shots go. So the, the, the crude measurements for goalkeeping are still in their infancy, mm-hmm. but um, just the general is safe percentage is not reliable and things that are this high generally regress. So, all right. I mean, the the good news here is it sounds like they're overperforming the defensive approach that they have, that, that their defensive performance, e- even if you take into account that XG isn't capturing the essence of what they're doing, it still sounds like once you account for things like block shots, the combination of the keepers and the shots they're blocking, they should still be conceding more. So maybe the the best advice for Arsenal here is, Shoot a lot. Stay patient. You know they're they're bound to let one in. Uh, the odds can't keep going for them. The, the the luck can't keep going for them. Just don't get frustrated because um, you're. It doesn't sound like you're going to play your way completely through them to a big chance. Maybe it's maybe this is going to be a game about taking the half chances and a lot of them. Uh, yeah, and I think if they're able to get that that early goal and force Burnley to to try to leave their penalty box, this is going to be a game that mm-hmm. that would really turn things around. Um, it, but if Burnley are allowed to just sit back and counter, um, it could be a long day. 
Um, so I think this is definitely going to be the need to be a game where Arsenal do um, take advantage of their width and, and move that ball back and forth and move Burnley side to side as fast as they can to try to create those little openings that they can exploit. Yep, I would hope so. And and lastly, just real quick, they don't they don't score much though, right? I mean, this is a game where we can probably start that first eleven commit a lot of resources into the attack. Maybe that third man run from Ramsey can be important um, because they're, they're not going to create a lot. No. And they are, um, they are overperforming on offense as well. Not nearly as dramatically, but yeah, they have 11 goals from 7.8 XG. Um, and Where, where's that them, rank in the league? Um, I didn't check that. Okay. Um, so no problem. I don't, I don't have that. It, off so- top of my it head. sounds low. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely low. Um, actually, if you look at my team ranking, I have them as the, the worst team in the league, which they are definitely overperforming where I would expect them um, to be. Um, well, and maybe this is where them, the tide turns. <laughs> yes. And the big thing from them is 30% of their shots come from headers. So they are that prototypical um, English team, I guess, with the let's get it high and wide fast and cross it in the box and, you know, go to our big guys to try to score. Yeah, I mean, the, re- the reality of it is, I mean, set pieces aside, we've actually, I think, been pretty good at keeping out headed goals. So, um you know, maybe, maybe that doesn't play into our weaknesses as much as the teams that can counter with pace and, and play playing behind. Um, all right, well, you know what? We've talked enough about uh, a terrible Europa League game and a middling Premier League opponent, so let's wrap it up there. Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore Crab. You can find his fantastic work on crabstats.blogspot.com. Scott, as always, we appreciate having you on. Thank you. And we'll talk to you, uh, I guess, after this game and see if it, it went the way we thought. Hopefully it does. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Okay, so that's a statistical look at what's going on. Um, let's get back to Paul uh, to talk Maitland-Niles Owen. So, Paul, one of the things we cover in that statistical segment is the fact that Arsenal uh, played 30 crosses in the match. They got into wide yeah. positions well. Three shots came from those 30 crosses, from those good advanced wide positions and that's really poor that's 10 percent average would be 25 percent so we weren't delivering the ball well but what it says to me is you're playing people that aren't wingers so their final ball from wide positions is naturally not going to be as honed because that's not what they've been developing as a skill set but their ability to get into those positions shows the ingenuity and the running and the dribbling and the tricks and the and the speed and the athleticism that you would want potentially in the middle of the pitch not to mention the incredible number of dribbles we pulled off so is it fair to say that Maitland Niles shined in the qualities you'd expect a midfielder to shine in who's playing on the wing, i.e. getting into those yeah. good positions, but then failing to deliver the final ball. Yeah, and and to be honest, I thought he did reasonably well on the final ball uh, for a guy who doesn't play that position. I thought this was probably his best game as a, a, a wing back, but it still showed the, the gap from what Giroud really needed and what Wilshire really needed coming in from the 10 spot into the middle. Uh, I thought he did great for that 80 to 90 percent of his role there we were extremely dribbly as scott covered uh maitland niles and jack were a big big piece of that um and so what which is a skill by the way that that if if we're key you know if we're talking about first team opportunities aside of aside from alexis we don't have dribblers in the squad anymore so having some guys that could potentially add that that can be useful in certain games yeah, absolutely, uh, and he can bring the he can break the lines in midfield. We we've seen that before. We just haven't seen it very much. Um, 
if Maitland-Niles is going to be a standout player for us as as opposed to just a squad player, to me it has to be in the midfield. I, I'm not saying he can do it, but if he could play a position and nail it down and be a standout player, it's going to be one of those two central midfield spots. Um, the the thing I've really worried about with him is is his decision-making, and this game was his best by far. I don't think he really put a foot wrong in terms of the choices he made. He's just not a, a wing-back. So if that's a, a sign that he's maturing and feel more feels more comfortable with the, in the team... And this game, you know, he's going to come away. I don't know if he got man of the match from our side. Maybe that's a bit meaningless when you lose. But if he comes away feeling like he was the man of the match, um, maybe that'll give him a little bit more confidence and will seem some better decision-making because he'll need that if he ever gets a shot at the central midfield spot. I'm, I'm not sure he'll get that this year, but I'd love to see him get it. Well, I mean, here's the thing you have to remember, right? I mean, Shaka Ramsey just about works. I don't think any, any of us would say it's like the dream partnership, but it just about works. The minute yeah. either of those guys isn't available, you're all of a sudden in the plan D. You're not even on plan B or C. I mean, I don't think anybody, including you, Paul, wants to see Francis Coughlin starting a lot of games in central midfield. Um, no. I think Mohamed Elneny is extremely limited, and while we may consider him safe, you know, against teams like Burnley, for example, who are going to put 11 men behind the ball, safe isn't necessarily helpful. Then you're getting to Jack and, and Maitland-Niles, and those are the kind of players that you're choosing from at that point. I mean, uh, unless you're going to drop a Wobie back into the midfield, too. So, I mean, Clive, is, is that really it? Is it Maitland-Niles and Jack that are maybe making the argument now to be the plan C or D we'd be on if one of Ramsey or Shaq is not available? And and do you think that Maitland-Niles has run in the, in the Europa League has has done enough for you to to edge him that much closer? For me, he's been one of the one of the standouts for the season for me. And, uh, for the season? Uh, uh, yeah, in the Europa League season. Look, I, in the Europa League season. I, I appreciate you, that I'm, you've even watched the Europa League. I think that shows commitment. But if you're <laughs> picking anything from our Europa League campaign as a standout for your season, uh, I am I am worried about what is going on well, in the rest of your life. Okay, mate. So when I say Europa League season, so the Europa Got League it. Oh, okay. is really all right. is, is yes. all is all about okay. what can we find out? What can we find out, and how many minutes can we get into experienced legs? So that if we have injuries when we hit the Christmas period, we can rotate people in who are not cold, they're warm, they're ready to go, and they can go to the extremities that are required to win a Premier League game. That's what this game was about. There were other players that could have played. But they made sure they got some minutes into experienced legs because they know in December there's a higher volume of games. There's three league games coming up very, very quickly. And we cannot play that same 11 three times in seven days. So this game was all about preparing for the rotation for the first team. And then I look at the older players that we're finding out, the players that are contract issues, we're finding out. Whether, what if you know if they're any good? We're finding out if they're committed, and then we've got a group of young players that we all know: the Willock, Maitland, Niles, Nelson, um, Sheaf, McGuane, Macy. These are players that are doing pretty well at their age group, but I thought showed up pretty well in the times we've had in the first team. And I look at Maitland, Niles, and we spoke about Jack being not maybe a modern athletic footballer. Well, let's flip to Maitland, Niles, should we? I mean, physically, he's incredible his pace has got to be up there in the top two or three in the whole squad his recovery speed is amazing so whenever i look at a player i always look when a player comes into a team 
I look at the things that he does quite easily because that tells you so I look at Mate and Nelson you look at someone like Nelson and Nelson he's obviously an extrovert he's a showman he's a, he's a dribbler he wants it one on one he's not scared he's only 17 but he's got to be one of the, he's got to be in the top 5 17 year olds in the country right so he is a super talent potentially in a couple of years time Maitland Niles is 19-20 he's further down the track he's had some league games in the championship but he, he can see straight away from a football perspective his personality is quite introverted he doesn't go and get the ball initially he doesn't go and search for work but when the ball breaks down you see what he's got so that tells me he likes to go and get the ball he likes to recover ball he's quite defensive in his default actions right so what i was really pleased about in this game was he showed offensive personality he went and got the ball a little bit more he wasn't been sitting there being reactive to situations he was being proactive to situations even on his left side high up probably the one position he wouldn't want to play. Uh, under t- at the England youth levels, he's played number 10. He played in centre midfield. He played on right wing. The only place he hasn't played at England level is on the left side. So we've stuck him We've stuck him into the left side in Arsenal first team games. So, so now we're thinking about what the squad needs. And I actually think the squad actually needs a real serious backup for Bellerin. Because I think that position... Is very important to us now. The wing backs are incredibly important. We know you've got Mumriel who can slip in on the left hand side, but we haven't really got anyone who can duplicate what um, Bellerin can do and offer the defensive security that's required at a Premiership level. So I do see an evolution for him. I see him potentially being the right wing back cover, and then eventually, once he gets more experience, hopefully replace. And I don't mean to pick on him, Paul, but hopefully to replace a Cockland or El Nenny in the squad in one of the centre midfields. Pick away. If you're managing, if you're managing, if you're managing a squad and you're managing pathways, you have to be looking at those two or three, or those two players, and saying, okay, this guy needs to force them guys out of the club by performing like he did last night, because then he's going to make me question what I'm going to do. He's going to make me question, um, should I carry these experienced players on heavy wages that are not playing? Or should I give a youngster a chance to cover two positions, set in midfield and right wing back, and I can develop my squad accordingly? And that's what the manager should be doing. So I'm really pleased what Maitland-Niles did, because he's now showing the personality that's required to play at the top level. And he's getting that from the Europa League, the minutes that he's getting, even though he's on the left-hand side. I'm not worried about it. As long as the manager's not judging him as a left wing back, as long as he's judging him as a first team player, I think he he's was really, the only really kid close. who got. I was just going to add, Clive. When you when you think about it, he was the only kid who got 90 minutes last night who started. Now maybe that was yeah, good call, out of need, but still very interesting. Yeah, physically, he's really coping. And in the last game, I don't know if you noticed in the last game, his best period was the last 20 minutes. And in this game, he played the whole game. Never looked like coming off. In the earlier periods when he's played, he has dropped away in games. He's faded. He's played for 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And suddenly now you're seeing a 90-minute player in the B team at the, top, at the first team level. So it's, it's not long now. And we might see him in December 
we might see him very quickly. You know, Bellerin could have a little tight hamstring and we need to have the speed in those areas. We need to replicate what Bellerin gives us. And I personally think he's the closest. I know some people listening to this will be thinking, well, it should be Nelson. But we all know what Nelson really is. He's not a right wing back. I wouldn't like to see him transfer that into the into the Premiership team. I'd like to see him get opportunities that maybe Theo Walcott has got historically and in, into, into the higher position and take minutes in that area. And then he can develop his confidence in the first team that way. So um, that's how I extrapolate forward with uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles. And that's how I see his future developing in the next two to three years. I think it's very important as a club, we create the pathway for him because I think he's got something. And eventually, I know people are going to think, you know, you're off your head, Clive, but I see him as a centre midfield defensive player, very similar as he developed in his body. In two, three years' time, I see him in a Victor Wanyama-type role, a really destructive-type role where he just the ball comes in and he can move it out on the pivot, but really be destructive in the challenge, really be quick on the recovery. That's exactly what Wanyama is. And I see him developing into that player when he, in a two to three years' time. Interesting. Uh, that was comprehensively handled, Clive, I have to say. And, Fuck. And, and articulate and spot on. And I, I know I learned a lot. Um, I, th- I think everything you said is absolutely correct. I, what I would ask you, though, and, and I think this is the issue, right? There is a point at which you just have to buy your first 11, right? I mean... You're yep. lucky if yep. you have one or two from your academy. Would we agree with that? I mean, the best teams in the world are lucky to have one or two from their academy. Um, but the squad is interesting. And it's so hard to find great squad players because great players don't want to be squad players um, unless they're on 300000 a week. You know, And so unless you're Manchester City, how do you build a squad? I mean, isn't it possible that Ainsley Maitland-Niles is good enough and hopefully dedicated to Arsenal enough to put on a decent wage to be that utility player that is, when he comes into midfield, you feel good about it. If he has to deputize at another position, you feel he can do it competently and maybe carves out a, a full and in, a rewarding Arsenal career on the fringe of the first 11. I mean, is is there anything wrong with that? I mean, do, do these guys... Because isn't that really the hardest thing to fill? It's If you spend enough money, you should be able to fill a first 11 full of good quality players. But it's not so easy to find guys who you trust to come off the bench. Um, yeah, Paul, I, what, what about I, are you, Paul? What, what do you think of this? Yeah, sorry, mate. <laughs> Go, no, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I see where you're going. I think that works for everybody but Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who's uh, an England team member. At his age groups, so. But what if I think the choice is go to go to Watford or go to? I mean, maybe Watford's a bad example. They're they're kind of well. I was going to say up and coming club. I I don't know. I mean, hard hard to say. But I'm saying if if the if the option is down the table, not living in London, not playing for the club that you know you you've been part of the academy, and arguably not even on the same wage because a squad player at Arsenal could potentially be making more. I mean. At some point, do you say, I, I can probably just about cling on to my England place but have a better career on the fringes of an Arsenal team? Yeah, I, I still think, you know, a young a young man of that age, he's 20, he was 20 in August, he's going to want to go for it, and his agent's going to want him to go for it. <laughs> yeah, and, he is. And life is young. 
Iwobi is a much more interesting one, right? Because he's right there. Is, is he a first team member or is he kind of 1.5 rather than in the, the 2.0 team? Within the next um, two seasons, Iwobi will expect to be a big part of the starting 11 at Arsenal or he will be somewhere else. I think he, he will back himself to have that big career. I don't know if Maitland Niles well, is well, on that he, level. He's the one that I could see kind of drifting between those two worlds and being at a Arsenal for a long time because you know if you keep moving the, the 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 goalposts on a player like that who's right in that spot, you could keep him ticking along for three or four years. That's fate, not necessarily the manager. So I could see him being with us for a long time without ever fully cracking the first team. But he's not really that utility player you talked about. So yeah. no, no, and on. Your other point, no. Okay. Um, so a la- last little piece on this before we move on. And by the way, just some bookkeeping here. I mean, we would have talked the concerns over Welbeck getting subbed at halftime, but the manager's already come out and said it's nothing. Uh, it was part of the plan, so that's good. He's fine. He came through his 45 minutes fine. That's all that matters. Um, we can talk about the dive that was a dive and not a penalty, but it was a dive, and we all agree it was a dive. As we've mentioned, as Paul has mentioned, I don't want to put this on Clive or I. These things all uh, balance out at the end of the season. God, Paul's been very clear on that, so we can move on from yeah. that. Um, and no one at Arsenal is allowed to save penalties because we don't want to make Czech feel bad. So, anywho, um, last quick thought, Paul. Everton were begging us, begging mm. us to take £30 mm. million pounds from them for Olivier Giroud. And yeah. I think even I acknowledged that there was a value to keeping Giroud and that maybe it was important to keep him. But at the end of the day, this is a 31-year-old striker who... We Look, at City, we started Alexis at center forward. Lacazette is our first choice center forward, and Danny Welbeck is potentially our second or third choice, depending on what you see of Alexis. Are we maybe getting into the spot now, having watched Olivier Giroud struggle when he has played this season, where maybe you have to say, we might be losing Ozil and Alexis for free. $30 million for Giroud might have been the right move. And I wonder if we're getting into the spot where Giroud's thinking... Shit. Yeah. I should have gone to Everton. He he certainly hasn't made the argument for getting back into the first. You know, it always felt, even when Giroud was out of the first 11, that he was a very minor injury or drop in form away from getting right back into it. It doesn't really feel that way right now, does it? No. And, you know, Lacazette started the last French international. Uh, and there are other strikers there, too, uh, and other forwards looking to push in. So. I could well imagine him going into Wenger's office for a heart-to-heart. And I really think Wenger had him come back this summer because Giroud decided he didn't want to go. And I bet I bet Arsene was well surprised. Uh, I'm sure he thought Giroud was on his way. And I mean, that he said he would have let him go, right? I mean, he said he was yeah. prepared to. And, and I can see why people were thrilled that he stayed, but I think now that we're seeing what his role is and also what his level has been, unfortunately, that maybe the $30 million for a 31-year-old striker in a season where, again, as we've been over it, we're going to lose some assets for free. Um, if you combine that with what we got from Oxlade Chamberlain, that would have been a nice offset. Um, yeah. Clive, I... Uh, though I, I, I must yeah. say, I don't... I don't see much of an issue with his his level. I just don't think he's having the minutes and the team isn't set up to play around him, which might may end up just being the same thing. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Can I say something to Giroud quickly? I think I, uh, yes, was actually absolutely. spot on. Um, I think 
Wichiru, you remember his better his better seasons. He played every minute of every game for us, where he was the only option. And now, oh, oh I remember, he's had some success <laughs> from <laughs> he's had some success on the bench. So we and we've asked him to change the, his rhythm, and I think he's really struggling. I don't think he can. His timing is off on his layoffs. He's he's not quite sure where he is at the moment, and I just think he's struggling. He's looking like a rusty player. His hold-up play isn't great anymore. That's what's been really no, surprising. Exactly. He used to just uh, the ball used to just like get sucked into him when they played it long, and now that doesn't happen. Yeah, he's he's not so accurate on his layouts. He's he's laying. He just he's some of his layouts are the wrong ones. When there's one around the corner, he's taking the safe one, going backwards. He's he's just having a bit of a struggle, right? So, um, but I do think that thirty million is still there. By the way, I don't think that's an issue. If he went on the market tomorrow, it'd be the same money. I. I want to watch him, and I, I, I am. I do like fast, agile forwards, so I have a bias for that. And when I watch him play, I see limits to our game. I see us in areas where in the pitch where we don't want to be. I see centre halves that look comfortable, and we don't surround. We didn't surround him with people with speed. Welbeck did quite well for half the game. I wonder him coming off. It means he's going to play at Burnley. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, but he needs that speedster, and maybe again we we look at we we stick to this formation three four two one because that's what we do. But really, if we're going to play this formation, we need to have two forwards. One, so Drew's got a partner, and it takes Jack off the sides, put him in behind two forwards, and, and we go from there. I really feel we if we're going to pick this second eleven, and obviously their major benefit is that the first team gets rested. We've got to give them a chance to be in a formation where they can get closer to getting closer to their top game rather than there is going to be situations where we're going to have left footers right footers on left hand side we we get it but surely we can get a formation that can get more out of more players and I think we're we're failing we're failing them in some way I think it's a shame the major haven't done that yeah, and, and I mean you see it all over the pitch it's a conversation for another day I mean I I think for example we can all agree Callum Chambers not a wing back not a full back not a wing back. Um, but yeah, like I, I the Giroud thing is 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 tough in the sense that I a lot of people adore him and I can totally understand that and he feels like a real Arsenal man at this point. Um, but it's a lot of money for a guy that maybe isn't in the plan and is certainly uh, on the other side of, of the best part of his career, of, of peak years of his career. Anyway, let's wrap it up on Europa League. We top the group. That's all you can ask for at the end of the day. We did it without having to use first-team players, essentially, and, and it's it's mission accomplished. I think it'll be kids in the last game, or hopefully I think it should be kids. I mean, as Clive has pointed out on Twitter and on this podcast, this is a chance to develop for the future, and you rarely get that in competitive games in the season, so let's hope they do that. Um, you know, the Catalyst for Change line got ridiculed quite a bit when it came out, but we have actually started to see a little bit of change behind the scenes at Arsenal, and whether it is happening... Um, against Arson's wishes or uh, with Arson passively accepting it or actively participating in it, there are things that are changing. And Arsenal made a pretty critical signing um, to the backroom staff uh, last week. Sven, whose last name I will not say because I don't know how it's pronounced, the superstar scout uh, from Borussia Dortmund who is known as Diamond Eyes, and it occurred to me that possibly Stan Kroenke agreed to buy him because they thought they could gouge out his eyes and sell those diamonds. Um uh, Diamond Eyes is now part of Arsenal. The man who found Christian Pulisic, who we love, uh, Aubameyang, Lewandowski. Yeah, this is a guy you want, and this is a guy we now have. And, Paul, I mean, first of all, 
do we do we owe Ivan Gazidis maybe a little bit of credit or or whoever we think it is for this for capturing this this talented scout and making the decision to move on from Steve Rowley and how important an acquisition do you think this will wind up being? Yeah, I mean, you got to give me some credit. Ivan Gazidis is my Francis Coquelin at board level. I've been defending him when others didn't. For, for no I, I have been reason. his staunchest defender, I think you'll find. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think Ivan, you know, there was all that talk about if Ivan didn't get his way uh, coming into the summer with the, the Wenger decision, he should walk. I thought that was utter bollocks. Um, well, your point, and uh, it's starting to bear itself out, is why not stay and try to make the changes you want to see at the club anyway, and, and maybe that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, if he's getting the... Uh, obviously, Stan had to sit down with both Arson and then with Ivan and give them a rationale and a roadmap forward. And I suspect uh, he was very clear with Ivan that he supported... Ivan's PowerPoints, which he's been putting up for a few years now about what needed to be done and what needed to be changed. And he found a way to accommodate both. And I, uh, that's what I hope is happening. I like to see this as part of it. I think people who say, you know, the people who said, oh, uh, we're getting this Sven guy in. Um, so, you know, that's the end of Tuchel. And uh, this is the start of the transition, but to somebody else, uh, I still suspect Arson's going to be with us for a while. Um, but if Arson can parlay himself somewhat into a more of a, a Ferguson role where he loosens up and gets more of these guys in, I mean, Arson was pretty critical, I think we saw last year, of scouting. Um, and he, you know, he named examples including Kante. Well, that came through uh, Gilles Grimandi. And that came through Steve Rowley. So there was some implied criticism of some of his stalwarts, some of his generals and captains. So uh, Wenger hopefully is seeing that he needs to freshen things up. I can't imagine a team and a person that Arsene would have more respect for than uh, Borussia Dortmund over the years. And this guy in particular. Um, Dortmund, as I understand it, have been pretty good working with stats, and obviously a big piece of this role will be the interface with stats DNA, with the the squad on the field, and with scouting. So this guy brings a huge amount of credibility, which I think is necessary to join the dots. And I guess the other thing that really intrigues me about this guy is, you know he's had Dortmund look at a lot of players, but He's probably had Dortmund, he's had a bit of a falling out or a, a cooling there over the last year or two. He has a, probably has a, a Rolodex, if they say that these days, of players that Dortmund didn't go for that he's had his eye on for a while. I wonder what that non-compete looks like and what <laughs> kind of list of players he's not allowed to discuss at Arsenal. But uh, I'm sure there's, there's the ones that they have in the hopper for Dortmund over the next year or two that they have an eye on, but I bet there's a whole bunch yeah. Um, that, uh, well, you, you know what's interesting, Paul? I mean, I, I, we haven't really failed buying from the top shelf, right? Lacazette, Ozil, Alexis, like, I don't think any of those were failed buys. I mean, you, you can have your criticism of any of them and all three of them, but ultimately I think we're pretty happy with that, and I realize it's early in the day with Lacazette. And, you know, granted, Shock is 50-50. Some people think he's absolute garbage. Some people think, he, think he's good, he's in the wrong system, and some people think he's just plain good. But, you know, the issue is 
you don't really need a top scout to buy 50 million pound players or 80 million pound players, 100 million pound players. Like PSG didn't need a scout to tell them to go buy Neymar. Um, they just needed a lot of soft soft power and you know underhanded dealing. Anyway, um, but what we haven't done is we haven't found a Colatore in a while. You know what I mean? A guy no one's heard of who you buy yep. for a million and you sell for a hundred million and granted that's very, very rare, but the Usman Dembele's, you know, Dortmund, what they've done with Usman Dembele and Pulisic and, and Aubameyang, although they never sold him, uh, Lewandowski, Royce. I mean, all of these guys, these, these phenomenally talented players. I mean, Gundogan, uh, obviously injury hampered what he could have been and what he is Kagawa. Um, but look, I, th- I think the, the question is Clive, can he make the difference at the level where we've missed out, at the fifteen million, yeah. five million, twenty million, the twenty-two-year-old that becomes a hundred million-pound player between twenty-two and twenty-five, you know, the seventeen-year-olds, the sixteen-year-olds, it's hard. To, it's hard to hit home runs there. The eighty-million-pound players, they're they're pretty easy to spot. Can he make the difference in that area we've been missing? Oh, I think this is really, really an interesting moment in our in our history. Really, I think. Um, it's quite, we've had a few people come into the club and what I found quite sort of curious is we haven't heard a single word from them. So Jens Lehmann's come in, apart from releasing the book, we've not heard from him, right? We've had a new contracts person come in, we've not heard from them, right? So we've had some people arrive, we've had the, um, the new fitness guy come in, we've not heard a word from them. So that tells me things are going on quietly. You, you can look at it, be cynical, you can say, well, I haven't heard from these people because they're not aligning themselves to the current regime. They're waiting for a change in the regime. So they're just coming in and they're staying quiet. Right? So that's one way you can look at it. Another way you can look at it and say, okay, let's be positive, Clive. Let's think you've been asking for people renewal in the background for about three, four years, and we're renewing the people. The people that are going will be at the club a very long time. We need to renew. Now look at the announcement for this guy. And... Wenger announced it, which I thought was really good. It wasn't a, a Gazidis announcement. Wenger was quoted on the website as announcing it, which means he must have been involved in the recruitment, which means he's behind it. So I'm pleased about that. So the debate around whether it's Gazidis or Wenger or both, maybe that just goes away and it's just it's, it's an Arsenal signing into the club. And what he does, and I read some articles this week, I've been doing, you know, doing my research like everybody else, and what seems to be his speciality is exactly what you alluded to earlier. He seems to be able to extrapolate forward and see the player that's going to reach the top the top in his game that maybe sees some talent that somebody has and sees in somebody something the ceiling that maybe someone else hasn't spotted. And Color Toy is a great example. But another player that I think was where Bengo used to do this all the time, he did it with Gilberto Silva. He did it with Laren. I mean when he bought Laren for seven million and he and he was a midfielder and he, he transferred into right back and the heights that he reached and they, he looked like a natural. Never saw that. And Bengo used to have that eye for picking somebody, but not only picking them, but, but positionally moving them and absolutely maximizing their talent so they could actually go into a team shape. And what we're seeing right now, we're not seeing that anymore. So the picking is, 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 is 50-50, right? Picking a player is 50-50. But what he was so good at was really finding a role for somebody within the team shape, the team pattern, and maximizing them until you couldn't be a... No one ever thinks that Lyon was a centre midfielder when he arrives. We just think of him as the right back for two, three, four years in the Invincibles when nobody went down his side. And if they did go down his side, they didn't come out with their legs, right? So <laughs> that's... 
that player was uh, uh, one of my heroes when I watched him. So that type of thing that Benga used to do, which I feel he doesn't focus on in the same way. And it seems to be this guy's main strength. So I'm really hopeful. And as Paul alluded to, I think when he was in Germany, he was the founder of a statistics company or analytics company. Mm-hmm. And he brought that thought process into Dortmund. Well, guess what? Arsenal have already got one. They've already got their own company. They've already got their own proprietary data that nobody else has. And I, and I personally, I'm sure you guys agree, feel that the future of football is going to go far more data-based than it is today. It's only going to get more of a decision process into our game. It's going to be data-driven decisions Moneyball. in the future. It's going to be data, data, data. It's going to drive our, our training patterns, what we do. It's going to drive our sports science. And it probably does already, but it's only going to increase. And so you need somebody that's open to that thinking, but also uses, uses a human eye. And from what I've read, and I knew nothing about him two weeks ago, from what I've read, he seems to have all those attributes. So I'm really looking forward to that. And again, we talk about Arsenal being attractive. We talk about, you know, uh, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I go for a job, the firm name on the door is great, but you end up working for good people. And the more good people you have in your organisation, the more attractive you become. And that's a good signing. That's a good start. And we're starting to see some good people coming in. Let's hope that makes us more attractive going forward. I work for myself from home, and I can assure you there are no good people in the organisation. Go ahead, Paul. (laughs) I was going to say, it does does juice up the January window. you got to think he has two or three players he has an eye on that uh, weren't in Dortmund's requirements. I mean, they, you know, they may not be looking for a wing back. They may not be looking for a central midfielder. So he's bound to have a couple of players. He's really fancy. The other thing is we spend a lot more than Dortmund do. So there could even be players that are a really good fit for us in our budget that were never, that just didn't fit the Dortmund model. Well, I think it's the wages in particular, right? Because, I mean, Usman Dembele, they bought him for 15 million. They sold him for 100 million a year later, two years later, whatever it is. I mean, that that can fuel a club. Look at Liverpool even. Selling Suarez and, and Sterling could have sent them back to the dark ages. You have to use that money well. And you can't look... Arsenal have financial might to compete right below the tier where Chelsea, City, and United are. And that's good enough to keep us fourth. But to keep us first or get us to first, you're going to have to be able to find 30 million, 35 million, 20 million, 15 million pound guys that maybe would have considered Dortmund, but we'll give them 150 grand a week where Dortmund give them 80. And those guys have to turn into 100 million pound players because A, 100 million pound players can win you the league and B, 100 million pound players can then bring in the revenues that renew you and allow you to, to renew the talent. This, this is the key. I think, I really do think recruitment has been the single biggest non-coaching problem at the club. Um, and, and I think that making a change there can, can be the single biggest factor to the, the renewal of the club. Um, but let's uh, end the podcast quickly talking about um, Burnley at the weekend. And it's a tough game. I mean, they're on level points to us. They're not allowing a lot of goals. We talked about it a little bit in the stats section, but I want to quickly get thoughts from, from you guys just on what to expect. I mean, Clive, they're going to sit deep even at home. They're going to block a lot of shots. Do you think the manager will go right back to the first 11 that we saw beat Spurs 2-0? And what do you expect from the game? I think he should do. It would be nice if he did because they've they've certainly earned the right to start another game. Um, it's interesting what he done with Welbeck. I think Welbeck will either play 
potentially, or he'll be twelfth man. So um, I'd like to see I'd like to see the same team start. Burnley don't take many shots. They can see lots of shots from from distance. I think they give up chances. So I think this is about execution. This is about you know composure in the in the area, making sure we execute. Once we execute, the game becomes stretched, and I think we'll be fine. I think it's very important that we score first. Burnley are the the, the second media darlings after Spurs in some ways because. In their squad of around 30 players, around 21, 22 of them are from the British Isles or Ireland. So they're very, very British in their approach. They've got a British manager. They're quite, they're quite very much a 4-4-2 team. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. And what this is massive for me. This is a cup final game because everyone expects us to lose or drop points. I'm really hoping we can follow up the Spurs game by putting them away. And that's my biggest hope for the weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so important that we score first, but I think also, and this is kind of the deep dive that I add to the pod, apart from you know whatever else I do, I think it's also important that we score more than they do. I think if we do that, we're going to come out with the three points. Uh, Paul, who, need, who needs Scott? Who needs Scott with that? Fucking hell, that right. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Paul? Yeah, wow. Um, so I think we should take the Monty, Monty Python and the Holy Grail approach of the... Uh, we should roll the ball over to them from the kickoff and just keep playing the ball to them to confuse them and then shout insults at them about their grandmothers and waving our nasty parts in their face. In hopes of getting them to try to attack us? (laughs) Yes. So that we can then take the ball off them and transition them? Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, what we should do. We should we should Seriously. shame shame them into coming out. <laughs> yeah, um, they're playing at home in front of their crowd. They'll have to do it. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, no, no, but I, I do think you know I, the key: switch the ball quickly, move them around, keep moving them around. You know, as Clyde points out, try to get that that opening goal. I mean, their keepers have been playing out of their minds. They've been blocking a lot of shots. Yeah. Just keep getting those shots and and you know hope for a good rebound or or a, you know a wonder finish and you get that first goal then you force them to come at us and then they're attacking into the teeth of what we do best which is defending um and in any event uh scott scott was was great with that we can leave it there i think we need three points at the weekend look this is the run this is the run now no more international breaks 27 points between now and the end of the season are up for grabs we beat spurs we're on a high this is the game that that kind of confirms the trend. You know what I mean? This the, is a huge game. It's a huge game, and and with Huddersfield following it, it's a chance to get on a run. And I believe Chelsea and Liverpool are playing each other on Saturday, yeah. so a chance to potentially leapfrog one of them, um, or maybe both of them, eh, well, at least one of them, uh, depending on what happens. So we'll hope for the best. Uh, Paul's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo! Uh, Clive's on Twitter at Clive P A F C, and uh, thank you as always, Clive. Thank you very much. Yeah, my name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. I certainly wouldn't say we deserve it, but if you give us a five-star review, you can write nasty stuff in the section, then under it in the description, and then you know people think that was witty and, and intelligent, and you will get lots of followers on social media. You will become a handsome and attractive person uh, who has nothing but success in life. So I strongly recommend it. In any event, thanks for listening. We'll be back after Burnley, uh, and we'll talk to you then. Cheers. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? 
Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.